0: I decided when I read all the readings that I wanted to preach on all of them, and this is a very important one of them, from Numbers, and we have a reading from the letter to the Ephesians, and then we have the reading from John's Gospel that contains within it um, something that you see uh, at every football stadium or uh, (coughs) baseball stadium or sports event often, uh, which is the Gospel in a Nutshell. John three sixteen. So we'll talk a little bit about that and some other aspects of John's gospel. Here's what I think thematically uh, we do on the fourth Sunday of Lent with the readings. We're talking about God's processes at work in the, in the world, in the cosmos, in the creation and the reading from numbers is going to be about the presence of god and understanding some clarity about the relationship of cause and effect and how you and i may understand cause and effect in a little bit less uh, precise way and that's to be understood and in the in the letter to the ephesians we have sort of a summary of paul's thought about a variety of issues about how god relates to us how we are made What it is that empowers and energizes us to be the transparencies of God's grace and love that we're called to be. And the reading from the Gospel according to St. John is about the saving power of the cross. And it is about God's illuminative processes at work in the hearts of all faithful people. And while it didn't say it in the Gospel reading in in the Gospel lectionary that we use at Mass... Uh, this follows on Jesus' interview and in conversation with Nicodemus. And so this is a particularly important thing to say about the Spirit of God at work, being born anew, being born from above, anothe, which is what it says in the, in the Greek text. So how do we understand what that might mean? I love these readings from Numbers and from other parts of the Pentateuch, which is the fancy word for the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, In Judaism, it's the Torah, Uh, so there are a number of ways to refer to this. And in Numbers, we have a a number of wandering uh, stories, and they're also called the murmuring passages, and that's why I like them, because the people of Israel are murmuring. And it is an example in the ancient Near East of the chronic anxiety of the culture, driven by some understandable uh, circumstances, which is moving from exile in Egypt now to the promised land. Remember, I've mentioned to you more than once Jerry Witherspoon, a prominent Episcopalian in our diocese, he's now the... President of the Standing Committee, he's a great guy, who was an army man, he went to West Point, and he decided one day after reading all this about the people of Israel leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land, that he would figure out on the maps how far it was from Egypt to the Promised Land that is mentioned, and then he'd do some figuring based on his military knowledge about how a group of the size that it is estimated to have been, men, women, and children, camels, horses, asses, not always (laughs) four-legged. And people moving in this direction. How long would it take to march this gang from Egypt to the Promised Land? And he computed, based on what military people would try to figure out, about three weeks so this means that we have a question to ask ourselves about 40 years wandering in the wilderness don't we and how come that is so and maybe the way people in groups interact with one another the 40 years uh, suspending for a moment the historicity of the story uh, how we would talk about whether or not uh, that, that might be a metaphor for the kind of both internal and external community and personal struggling. That people come as they do something that Moses is their leader and Aaron particularly Moses though was at pains to do and it is this whenever you read these passages this is very important Moses always attempts to defocus the people of Israel from their looking at their past through rose colored glasses the place of remembered good times and refocusing them to the future, where they will receive a new self-definition and a new understanding of what it means to be the people of God and what their vocation is going to be in the world. But today we have some things that may be raised, when you heard that reading, uh, some, some flags, at least they do for me. Uh, first of all, we have a classic case of triangulation, don't we? we got Moses and God and the people of Israel in a triangle. And the people of Israel are murmuring or complaining because they're out there. They don't like the food. There's no water. There's no food in this particular location. And they're very worried about themselves, clearly. And they also have uh, uh, want to do something that is symptomatic of chronic groups, and that is blame displacement, okay? You and I live in a culture where blame displacement is one of the things, you know. We've had a terrible situation in our financial world, haven't we? And all of the news media is trying to figure out who to blame. And the truth of the matter is, there's plenty of blame to go around, isn't but people think they feel better and receive some species of symptom relief if they can focus the blame in some direction. And most importantly, get the blame off of themselves in any way, right? Wouldn't that be the thing you'd want to do to sort of get that away from you? So because of the complaining, it says here that God sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit him. And they died, a lot of people. And so after a little bit of this, the people begin to think, oh no, what have we? What, how have we offended God? So they go to Moses and they say, we've sinned against God and we've sinned against you by this complaining and we need some relief here. So Moses sets up an image of a serpent, and tells them that if they look at the serpent, they will not suffer from the bites. If they get bit, they won't be, they won't die. Now, there's a whole lot of things in this, isn't there? There's what about the Decalogue, which comes before the Book of Numbers, saying you're not supposed to make any graven images, right? We have some biblical evidence in 2 Kings that King Hezekiah in chapter 18 busted up this image which had still been in the possession of the people and was now being... Offerings were being made to it. So it it, it was a relic that had been kept and now superstitious practices had attached to the use of this thing. Right? Now, in the ancient wandering nomadic peoples and in some biblical interpretation, you could say, this is the God we believe in, one who if you complain against him, he will punish you. So that may be the point of the story. It may be that we're thinking that the direct relationship of cause and effect is your complaining and the serpents biting you and some of you dying. So this is all how you begin to think about what kind of an interpretation do you make of this passage. Because this really is about the power of the presence of God. And recent biblical archaeology and biblical scholarship in the Hebrew Bible suggests that the serpent sign for the people of Israel was a sign of God's healing power. There's a Greek symbol, isn't there, for healing power, that's snakes. It's the doctor's symbol. I think it's what they it called? It it is it. Is. It yeah. So I suspect in the ancient world, this was something that was operating there to some degree. And so maybe the point that the writer of the book of Numbers is making is that God's default position is to heal through some complex arrangement at this particular point between this sign and between a change in behavior on the part of the people of Israel. Maybe a little less blame displacement and the taking on of some personal responsibility. And once that begins to happen, uh, the healing power of God is at work, and the people of Israel become refocused now as they move forward. So we would read this in the season of Lent, mainly to focus on the presence of God and the healing power of God as the way we understand this, particularly in a season when we're doing some self-reflection about our behavior, both in a community sense and in a personal sense, and we're thinking about how we make forward movement and acknowledge God's presence, God's unconditional acceptance, love and forgiveness when I was in seminary and subsequent I would say that the, the majority of New Testament scholars uh, would tell you that Ephesians is not Pauline that is to say Paul did not write this epistle that it was written by one of his associates after Paul died and who cares But it is important because it gives us some insight into how the heirs of Paul, H-I-E-R-S, of Paul, understood his teaching and the high points of what it is he was saying about God's way with us, how he understands God's redemptive work in the world, and what is our responsibility as we move forward uh, trying and wanting to be or yearning in some way to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. I read a recent article in a, in a you know, one of these don't get one journals, you know, uh, New Testament studies. And there are some now who are suggesting that Ephesians was a cover letter to the authentic epistles of Paul. And the reason is, is the case, I've, I've mentioned this to you before, I might as well say that, how come you would even suggest that he didn't write this? Well, because his the style of the writing, the words that are used, the method of introduction, all of those things are completely different than the authentic Pauline letters. He begins sentences often with a Greek preposition called oh, un, you know, you know, da-da, you know, da-da. Years ago when I was began my ministry and taught in the school down at St. Michael's, uh, the kids then would, everybody would begin a sentence with, okay, da-da, right? Okay, yeah, that, right? That's
1: like, you know, that's so not
0: true. <laughs> <laughs> right? So if you're talking that way all the time, or writing that way all the time, and it doesn't appear in this particular thing, maybe who wrote it is, is uh, uh, a question. In any case, it's a wonderful summary. It also, by the way, shows enormous intimate knowledge of Paul's letter to the Colossians, because it repeats a lot of stuff from Colossians in Ephesians. But, it adds some terms and phrases that Paul didn't use which kind of update the letter. So it might be that so not true is in there as opposed to when he wrote stuff ten years before it was. So that's why we're suggesting it. So there's a great summary in this letter about Saved by Grace. Um, Unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven in in the Pauline sense of the word. Other themes in the letter that are part of how Paul understood uh, God's way with us and the inclusive nature of now the promise of God and the redemption seen in Christ. Not just for the select few, the people of the covenant of which he is one, a Jew, but also for the Gentile community. So that God's gracious offer is for everybody. And we read this on the fourth Sunday of Lent to remind us of that default position. Remember, grace is God's favor freely given without regard to our merit. And so we operate in the grace. We don't always feel like we're operating in the grace. But that's what we believe as the people of God and is at the heart of our self-understanding. And so Paul, in this, or the, or the author of the letter to the Ephesians, is uh, summarizing for us how that might operate as we move forward. In the Gospel, John is... Let me say some things to you about this. You know, I watch this stuff sometimes on TV... There's on all these stations now there's stories about the Bible and Mary Magdalene you're trotting out all these scholars about who a new way to look at this and, you know, given our own predisposition these days since people say, well the reason why these books survived and the other ones didn't is that there was some sort of a conspiracy and oppressive <coughs> undertaking going on and that's why that happened you know why a lot of those books we don't have as many of? people stop reading them They didn't believe them. They thought they were a less accurate picture of Jesus and about all these other things, and so they preferred the other view. That's not me saying this. That's Robert M. Grant, who taught at the University of Chicago for a long time and has forgot more about the New Testament period and the church of the first four centuries than most people learn. So it isn't that we have these points of view that are suppressed truth as the main way of understanding that. That's just a commercial message from me. At the same time, John's gospel uses imagery that sounds really Gnostic, which is a fancy word for a point of view about God and Jesus and so on that um, was rejected by the early church as an accurate picture. But John you can interpret it this way. He's got light and darkness and evil and all that in there. That's, that's all this stuff. It's the language of Gnostics. But he is using it like using contemporary <coughs> syntax and ways of speaking so that the readership, heavily influenced by this or beginning to be are going to understand what he's saying about Jesus in those categories. But with a slight remove. Okay? So, what do we have today? Nicodemus has finished his coming to Jesus and speaking with him. And Jesus has told him that he needs to be reborn. And he doesn't get this because he believes he can't be born again because he's already come out of his mother and he can't go back in and come out again. Right? So, what does he mean? And Jesus uh, sort of rebukes him slightly and says are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? And then he says again what is necessary. So he addresses Nicodemus initially in this passage I wish they would have said it, about the sign of the cross. And that the redemptive work of God can be seen here because we're going to say something about redemption and suffering and stuff as we move forward. But what Jesus, in John's words, is most concerned with is to say this, as you begin to understand what it means to be born from above, you will understand the nature of the work of the Spirit in your life, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you, and that constitutes, for John, the illuminative processes of God at work, light, insight, All of the human ways in which you and I get clarity about the way in which we are going to live, how we're going to relate, and how we're going to proceed. Some vocational clarity, some ability to access uh, sources of energy and perseverance so that we will be able to rise to the occasion and be instruments of God's work in the world. You know, most people in leadership, most people in families, the thing that happens is we all just get ground down. The stuff that beats you isn't that you have been defeated by some great idea. You've been defeated from the ordin- by the ordinary and commonplace philosophy of life. So maybe in the ancient Near East, one of the things that ground you down was physical labor to the point where you simply were like this... And for a lot of us, it's the pace of life, being overscheduled, believing that we need to be. We're all like the monkey, you know, with his hand in the jar with the nut. And what he discovers is he can't get his hand out of the jar unless he lets go of the nut. So who's going to let go first? Because somebody may get ahead of you. You know, that's enervating. When I was at the clergy conference, and we had this three days on Edwin Friedman, uh, when Ed Friedman was still alive, he died in 1996, his wife had to go look after her family, her some older relatives, for a brief period of time. There was a lot of tension and anxiety about all of this, the usual family pressures and stuff. So she goes away to do this and she's away for the allotted period of time. And she comes back to Washington, DC, where they live in the Maryland, and she's in the bang. She's absolutely exhausted. And so as she was there for a day or so, she finally said to Ed, she said, You know why I'm exhausted? It isn't all the work I was doing to look after whoever it was. It was the energy that I put in remaining (laughs) non-anxious. So kindly old Father Brewer is talking to you all the time about the non-anxious presence. It's work. And it takes energy. And sometimes if the resistance is just like this all the time, it can grind you down. So that's what Marjorie Meredith, God rest her soul, who we buried just last week, had in her bulletin for the service. One of those Latin maxims, non bastardos carborundum, don't let the bastards grind you down. (laughs) Right. Illegi- well, in my center. Center. we had a sweatshirt. We all wore the sweatshirt from Neshoda. No illicitamos, contrary vos, which is don't let the basset grind you down. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, the, that's what we had, right? As so long as we're on T-shirts, one of my classmates, David Seltzer, came the first four, three or four months uh, at Neshota. It was still warm and winter hadn't set in yet. And he used to wear this T-shirt that was Hebrew, Hebrew letters. And so as you get started in the first year, you get the biblical languages and you start to, you know, where you focus. And I didn't take Hebrew much. I just learned some of the the alphabet and things because Greek was what you really had to learn. And one day, he was walking with his T-shirt and I looked at it and I I could read now, but read it, and it said, (laughs) Shazam. (laughs) Shazam. Why did I mention that? Because when we speak about God's illuminative processes, one of the things that we learn from God is that having a sense of humor and playfulness is a very good way to help you cope with these pressures. And so Jesus is speaking in the categories of the Gnostic, to some degree, through John's Gospel, that we see darkness, lack of clarity, cloudy uh, uh, faulty thinking illuminated by God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. This is not because you had a a religious bolt or thought where you